This morning, we're going to continue reading uh, in John chapter 11 uh, about the death of Lazarus. And we're going to be reading uh, verses 5 through 16. And one thing I just want to point out in this, we think of uh, the disciple Thomas as doubting Thomas at the end of of Jesus' uh, ministry here on this earth. But when we get to this last verse, just think about the heart of Thomas, that uh, he was willing to go with Christ and die with Christ. Uh, Here we go. So uh, verse 5. And and also think about this first verse. Jesus loved, 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 just like He loves us. He personally loved Martha, Mary, and and Lazarus and His people. Now, now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when He heard that Lazarus was ill, He stayed two days longer in the place where He was. Then after this, He said to His disciples, let us go to Judea again. The disciples said to Him, Rabbi, The Jews were just now seeking to stone you, and are you going there again? And Jesus answered, Are there not twelve hours in the day? And if anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble, because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles, because the light is not in him. After saying these things, he said to them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. The disciples said to him, Lord, if he's fallen asleep, he will recover. Now Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought he meant taking rest and sleep. Then Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died. And for your sake, I am glad that I was not there, so that you may believe. But let us go to him. So Thomas, called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, Let us also go, that we may die with him. And then uh, the uh, sermon text is a familiar text from Luke chapter 1. And we're going to be reading verses 46 through 53 from Luke chapter 1. And Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. For he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with His arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich He has sent away empty. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Thank you, Mark. 
Thank you, music team. Thank you, church family, for being here today. It's a joy to be with you. Had a great week at, uh, in Memphis with the ACBC conference. I'll be giving you some highlights of that in just a minute. Um, it, was, uh, it was a real blessing to be at Bellevue Baptist Church, a very historical church uh, in Southern Baptist history. Um, in the 70s, 80s, uh, when Adrian Rogers was the pastor that we're in, in the midst of the battle for inerrancy that the SBC went through during those years. Um, and uh, the church is just an amazing structure. Um, we're, we're in basically one of their larger Sunday school rooms right now. <laughs> uh, and, um, but they have a hallway uh, with... Uh, uh, all remembrance, remembrances of all their pastors, and um, on the the uh, picture of them with one of their major quotes from their uh, ministry at, and tenure at the church, and um, I love the Adrian Rogers quote, and uh, I want to share that with you today before we pray. He said, "The Bible addresses one problem: sin." The Bible has one villain, Satan. The Bible has one hero, Jesus. The Bible has one purpose, to glorify God. So as we study God's word today, may he be glorified. May we be reminded of our villain who prowls the world seeking whom he may devour. And may we fix our eyes on our hero, Jesus who has taken care of our biggest problem, sin. Let's pray together. Father, thank you. Thank you for bringing Amy and me home safely to our precious church family. Thank you for the week you gave us last week, the, uh, the new knowledge you put in my heart uh, from godly teachers, uh, the reminders that I so am prone to forget from those same teachers. Thank you, Lord, for uh, the ministry of ACBC, and thank you for our connection to that organization. God, we thank you for the Bible. Thank you that every Sunday morning we can gather around it and be taught and be sanctified and be washed in the water of your precious word. So, Lord, once again, with united heart, we ask you to teach us. Speak, O Lord, for your servants are listening. Help us to listen attentively, Father, as we focus on Jesus as mighty God and the name that is above all names. Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts together here today be pleasing in your sight. O oh Lord, our rock and our redeemer. <clears throat> yeah, I always like to, when I go to a conference, I always like to, to give you a brief report. This will be very, very short, won't do it justice, uh, won't do justice to the material that I received and took in. It's one of those things, you're like you're standing under Niagara Falls or you know, drinking from the fire hose. But uh, I always feel impe- compelled to to report to you because you pay my way. Uh, you, you send me there. And so I'm thankful for that. Very, very thankful for that. 
Um, just some highlights, some of the comments, quotes, teachings, reminders. Uh, the theme of the conference was in his image, recovering human dignity. And one of the things I love about ACBC, they're not afraid to get into the fray. Uh, if you recall, you probably don't recall, but in 2015, summer of 2015, when Supreme Court issued the Obergefell decision legalizing same-sex marriage, the theme for that year in the fall was uh, the biblical view of homosexuality. <laughs> right back at you, okay? Uh, and now with the attacks on uh, men and uh, women being created in God's image, created male and female, they come this year with a reminder of that in his image, recovering human dignity. Uh, just some highlights. Uh, introductory comment. It's the largest ACBC conference ever, which is very encouraging. Um, Dale Johnson, the president uh, of the of ACBC said, as culture grows darker, true believers are hungry for the truth. So that's a good sign. I believe a, a great divide is happening. Okay, a great divide. God is sifting. He's sifting the church. And uh, the true believers are going to come forth. And the phony believers are going to fall to the wayside with the uh, anti-God ideology that, that is rampant uh, in our nation. Uh, in his opening address, uh, Dr. Johnson pointed out that there's more money, more money being spent on mental health than ever before. But the rate of suicide is higher than ever before. Point. The problem is not in our head, but in our heart. Get the heart right and the head follows. He went on to say, uh, the spirit of the age has eliminated the creator. All that matters now is my experience and how I feel about it. This is why transgenderism, quotes, it's a made-up word. It's why transgenderism is flourishing. Psychological identity trumps biological reality. And in the next session, Denny Burke reminded us of this basic truth. If the brain is saying female, but the body is saying male, the brain is wrong. He said, our kids are drinking from a fire hose of LGBTQ agenda that is driving them away from Jesus. And, beloved, we need to be aware of this. We need to be aware of this. Some might say, well, Butch, why do you keep bringing this stuff up? Well, number one, I don't know who's going to be in here every Sunday, okay? But I want to be very clear about this to my precious church family. These are ideologies we cannot be sympathetic with. The people, the individuals, yes, very sympathetic, very sympathetic. Individuals who have been deceived and who have been enslaved by this, this demonic ideology, this anti-God demonology. Yes, our hearts break for them. But the doctrines of demons, no, no. We're not sympathetic, and there is no gray area, okay? Let's please understand that. Then at, you know, I got home the very uh, the Friday, 
after, he, after listening to, to Dr. Burke's message and read a tweet which was embedded in another email that I receive on a daily basis um, commenting on the drastic surge in gender dysphoria diagnoses. Now, gender dysphoria, whatever you think about that, kids might struggle with that. But what do we do? Do we start cutting off body parts or do we counsel them in love and, and, and bring them out of it with the goal of bringing them out of it? The statistic was among kids aged 6 to 17 in the U.S., diagnoses of gender dysphoria went from a little over 15,000 in 2017 in America to over 42,000 in 2021 and practically doubled a little over 20,000 in 2021 to over 40,000 in 2022. And the writer made this comment, there is absolutely no explanation for for this but social contagion. The number of kids with actual gender dysphoria cannot organically double in a year. These kids are being manipulated on a massive scale. And brother, brother, we got to stand against that. I don't know if you remember, but in 2015, when the Overfield decision came down, I said that very next Sunday. In fact, that was one of those things, days, that was one of those rare occasions where I chunked my, because the decision came out on a Friday. My sermon was complete. When the decision came in, I chunked my sermon, did a whole new sermon on Saturday to address this. And I said then, the church is the last line of defense for biblical marriage. And here we are again. Here we are again. We're the last line of defense for the truth of being created in God's image being created in God's image, male and female. We're the last line. I'm worried that we're not concerned about it enough. We just don't want to be bothered. We just don't want to be bothered. We just don't want to create any ruffles. We just want to be Whatever. These kids are being manipulated on a massive scale. And this secular anti-God mindset, I believe this was still from Dr. Burke, uh, is dominated by what he called expressive individualism. Expressive individualism resulted in the false belief that human identity is self-determined and not God-determined. Fallen people believe their feelings are right, and this drives their decisions. Then to shift gears a little bit, uh, many of you probably know Virgil Walker. He was one of our speakers. He's Daryl Harrison's partner on the Just Thinking podcast. In his message from James chapter 2 on uh, partiality, showing partiality, and connecting it to the, a lot of the racial discussions we're having today, uh, uh, He made this profound, very simple point. Races don't reconcile. People do. Isn't that amazing? Isn't that, that's that's profound. Number one, there's only one race, the human race, okay? 
the human race, okay? Uh, shades of brown from dark to light, they are precious in his sight, okay? One race, the human race. But putting that aside, if you want to use the word race for different people groups and different ethnicities, okay, that's pretty common. We'll get you. But how do races reconcile? Who's the representative of the white race? Who's the representative of the black race? Who's, who's going to come and meet and say, okay, we're reconciled? No, individuals reconcile. And as we say in counseling sessions to people who are having issues with with others, reconciliation is always right because it's the heart of the gospel. So it starts on an individual basis. And he said the only thing that is truly systemic, that's a popular word these days, the only thing that's truly systemic in our culture is sin. (laughs) Amen. (laughs) Amen. Isn't this good? Isn't this good? Amen. Then in a breakout session, okay, shifting gears again. Okay, married couples, listen, if you ever have an issue... Ever have a problem you want to come to me about? Here's the first thing I'm going to say to you, okay? This was because so, his, his topic was on uh, struggling with a stagnant marriage, all right? And he said, the more satisfied, and he gave a great, had a great testimony about early struggles in his marriage. Um, but he said this, he said, the more satisfied, now t- this is group counseling, Okay. This may save you. This may save you coming in individually. Okay, he said, "The more satisfied I am in Jesus, the less I need from my spouse." Okay, the more satisfied I am in Jesus, the less I need from my spouse. Now he made it. He made it. That's not diminishing your spouse. But the more his point was, the more satisfied I am in Jesus the more I'll be willing to lay down my life for my spouse and consider her more important than myself or him, whatever sex you are. And remember, you're married to the opposite sex. And he said, each spouse's relation to Jesus is more important than their relationship to their spouse. So if you come in for marriage counseling, first question, how satisfied are you in Jesus? Well, uh, not very satisfied. Okay, go home, come back later, get satisfied in Jesus. There you go, free, free group counseling. Okay. Uh, and then add, the, the wrap it up, uh, too long on this, I know, but uh, Adam Tyson, uh, pastor in Georgia, wasn't familiar with him. He spoke on a biblical uh, perspective on end-of-life issues and how that the Bible does not support euthanasia and or physician-assisted suicide, and he ended his session with this profound and provocative statement. He said, our life comes to an end when we are silent about things that matter. There you go. That's why I bring up these things to you. I want you to know, number one, and if you're on the fence, I want you off the fence, number two. Our life comes to an end when we are silent about the things that really matter. Now, picking up where we left off next week. That's my report, okay? Real quick, there's much, much more I could have said. It was a great week. It was a great three days, okay? Uh, And then a great Thursday with my bride at, uh, yeah, I'll confess, Graceland. Okay, we're at Memphis. (laughs) We had to see it. 
Yeah, I had never seen it before. It was great. It was great. Uh, so there you go, okay? Uh, but uh, one day we're all going to the true Graceland, right? Yes, we will meet in glory. Yes, okay. You didn't pay for that, okay? I paid for that. Okay, <laughs> want to make that clear. Want to make that very clear. Okay, okay. All right. So we're moving along. Uh, I noticed uh, we're at this thirteenth message on our uh, series on the names of Jesus, and we're on M and N. I think that's letter thirteen. So we're 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 right on schedule uh, with the alphabet here. Uh, but uh, Jesus is mighty God. I had to cut this from last week because I wanted to focus on it. And our verse for this one is uh, the famous Christmas verse Isaiah nine six. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Mighty God. Mighty God. Oh, by the way, if you're visiting with us for the very first time, we're in the middle of a study of the names, the scriptural names of Jesus, and we're just going through the alphabet, okay? So there you go. Uh, mighty God. Jesus is mighty God. Here we have one of the classic statements of the deity of Jesus. Our Savior is God. Mighty God. This is a cornerstone of our biblical faith. And, and don't you love this name for Jesus? I mean, you love all of them, but don't you love this one? It reminds us of, of two very important things. Number one, it reminds us of the deity of, of Jesus. He is God. God in the flesh, the incarnate word. Number two, though, it reminds us also of the power of Jesus. He is mighty God. The Hebrew adjective there is an authoritative term. It speaks of one with all authority. But it's also a military term. It speaks of one who is all-powerful in both defense, defending against an enemy, and in attack, offensive attack, and who will ultimately defeat all his enemies. Now, this is such good news. This name is such good news because we desperately need the one who is mighty God on our side because of who our enemy is. Let's think about that for a moment. In the garden, let's go back to the beginning. In the garden, we saw the enemy as a deceiving serpent. And he still attacks people using that strategy. And, and what was that strategy? You know it. Has God really said? Has God really said not to eat from that tree? Has he really said that? Are you sure? Are you sure? I mean, think about examples in our day. Has God really said that Jesus is the only way, the only way to him? What, what about all the good, moral, wonderful Jewish people and the good, moral, wonderful Muslim people and the good, wonderful, moral Hindu people? Really? Has God really said 
that Jesus is the only way to him? Or has God really said that his word is the final authority in all things? Really? Come on. Old outdated book written by sheep herders and unknowns and fishermen and whatever. Really? Or, or has God really said that he created people in his image and given them a fixed sexual identity? Has he really said that? Come on, you know there's there's got there's got to be some kind of spectrum, you know, on the gender scale. You know, there, there's got to be a non-binary category in there somewhere, because after all, we're such smart, intellectual, brilliant people. Read today where um, a children's hospital connected to, well, anyway, up in the Northeast. In Massachusetts, so one of the doctors there telling us that uh, babies in the womb know that they're trans transgender, and <laughs> they know that. Okay, I thought they weren't babies in the womb. I thought they were just clumps of cells. It, you, you really can't debate with the with this side, with this other side. It's just so illogical, every bit of it. Has God really said that? Really, has God really said only two sexes, really? Or, or has God really said that, that true marriage is between a man and a woman only? Really? Come on. Come on. You love, love who you love. The freedom to love who you love. Sounds so good. Sounds so mushy and sweet. Deceiving serpent still using that tactic. Has God really said? And he wants us to ignore or disobey what God has said. He pulls that tactic out on immature, uh, weak, nominal Christians. Because the world's arguments can sound so intellectual and so smart But at the same time, sometimes he's a deceiving serpent. But sometimes in Scripture, he manifests himself as a devouring dragon. I think we talked about this a few, few Christmases ago. Remember the theme for that Christmas? Kill the dragon, get the girl, yes. Okay. Examples abound in Scripture. Pharaoh ordering the throwing of Jewish babies into the Nile River. Pagan nations and rebellious Israelites offering their children as sacrifices to Molech. Nebuchadnezzar throwing young men in the fiery furnace. Herod killing babies because one of them might be a king that would threaten his rule. You say, oh, that's just Bible. That's, uh, well, okay, what about our day? What about our day? What about... Baby-destroying agencies like Planned Parenthood. Quick side note, did you know that 79% of Planned Parenthood offices are in minority neighborhoods? 
I wonder why that is. I'll let you think about that. Or uh, how about this? Gender-affirming doctors who happily mutilate children with grotesque surgical procedures in their attempts to play God and make human beings into the opposite of what God made them. Devouring dragon. Teachers unions that promote the Marxist ideology of oppressed and oppressor based on your skin color. And you often seem to be trying to turn children against their parents. Public libraries promoting drag queen story hour for kids. Listen, beloved, you have to have your head in the sand to not notice the relentless onslaught of the dragon against children and the family. You have to have your head in the sand. Remember what Pete said last week during last week's Old Testament reading from Joel 3.8? He said, before he read the verse, he said, or after he read the verse, maybe, it was about the destruction of children or the, the drawing away of children. He, and Pete said, as goes the children, so goes the nation. And that's the devil's strategy. Get the children. Get the children. I'd like to stop here and ask a, a, a serious question to my church family. Are you upset or concerned about what these seemingly demon-possessed people are doing to the children of our country? Or are you more upset that I'm pointing it out? I really want you to think about that question. The war began in the garden and it continues today. The seed of the serpent against the seed of the woman. Dark versus light. Evil versus good. Demonic versus Jesus. But the good news is the climax of the conflict has already occurred. As we just sang about. We're fighting a battle that's already been won. The climax of the conflict that already happened 2,000 years ago, assuring the final outcome of the war. The climax came at Calvary. You know the old, old story. We love the old, old story. Tell us the old, old story. Satan himself, the deceiving serpent, the devouring dragon, entered Judas. And Jesus was betrayed, arrested, put through a mock trial, beaten and crucified. Satan thought he had won. But in reality, he had been crushed. <laughs> Hebrews chapter 2, 14 and 15, since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. This is the action of mighty God, the serpent crusher, the most evil deed in history 
in the history of the human race, i.e. the cross, was the moment that was brought about by the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, according to Acts 2.23. And that was the moment of Satan's definitive and crushing defeat. John tells us in his little letter of 1 John, the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. Mighty God has destroyed the devil and his works. The mortal enemy of our souls has been defeated. May we walk, beloved, in this victory purchased by the blood of Jesus, who is our loving master, the promised Messiah, our faithful mediator, and mighty God. Now, for a few minutes, let's, just, let's call the mother, the human mother of mighty God to the witness stand. We read her words in Luke 1, 46 to 49. And Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. He who is mighty, there's our word, he who is mighty has done great things. And in verse 51 we read, he has shown strength with his arm. He who is mighty has done great things for all of us who belong to him. If God wasn't mighty, he couldn't be Savior. If God wasn't all-powerful, he couldn't defeat sin, death, Satan, and hell. The hope for the world, the hope for every lost person in this room, the hope for every believer to ultimately get to heaven is the omnipotent strength of God's mighty arm. And who is his mighty arm? Who put flesh and blood to God's omnipotent power? Yeah, you know his name, Jesus. Jesus. Our salvation is totally dependent on the omnipotent strength of God from beginning to end. From conversion to perseverance to glorification manifested in the person and work of the God-man, Jesus, mighty God. Paul said, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. Why, Paul? For it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes. The power, beloved, the power, the sin-defeating, blinder-removing, death-destroying, Satan-crushing, apathy-eliminating, bondage-removing power. Mary's soul magnified the Lord because of this, and so should ours. You cannot be apathetic about mighty God. No way. No way. It just doesn't work. Jesus is the Almighty One, the only hope for the world. And, and, and God expressed that might 
in his one and only son, who is called Mighty God. We see in, in this text not only a proclamation of God's actions, but as we look at, at it more closely, we see the way in which God's action through Jesus for the salvation of man condemns and indeed demolishes all in which unregenerate men and women trust or have ever trusted. Verse 51 again, he has shown strength with his arm. How? How has he shown that strength? Well, we see at least three ways here. Let's continue to let the mother of mighty God speak to us from God's word. Verse 51, he has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. Verse 52, he has brought down the mighty from their thrones. Verse 53, he has, the rich he has sent away empty. Listen, the glorious gospel of Jesus is not only a complete reversal of everything that man has ever proposed. It condemns, it demolishes, it blows out of the water. It scatters everything in which lost man by nature, the nature that he's born with, trusts. Here, here's a key principle that I don't want you to miss, okay? If, if, if your neighbor is, is sleeping, give him the nudge, okay? Mighty God demolishes the things in which lost men trust. He totally demolishes them. Let's consider each one of these in a little bit more detail. Verse 51, he scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. In other words, Jesus' might demolishes the lost person's worldly wisdom. The might of Jesus, mighty God, demolishes the lost person's worldly wisdom. The word scattered, he has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. It's a very strong word. It means he has scattered completely until nothing is left. Everything just sort of disintegrates. Human pride, human wisdom, man-centered notions of getting to God in our own power, thinking you don't need God, all those types of thoughts, they're completely scattered, done away with dismissed those who are haughty or prideful with respect to their own reasoning or their own understanding or their own fleshly wisdom or deceitful thoughts of their deceitful hearts will be scattered those who think they have it all figured out apart from god will be destroyed they will be demolished by mighty god see if the only picture you have of jesus is 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 carrying lambs around and looking real sweet you, you got to get balanced okay you got to get balanced i think of romans 122 where paul said claiming Claiming to be wise, they became, what, fools. 
total fools. Claiming to have it all figured out. Yeah, we got this transgender thing down. Yeah. Babies in the womb. They know they're transgender. Yeah, we got it, baby. We're so smart. We're so intellectual. Yeah. They will be scattered. Undone. Destroyed. If they stay like that. With God, all things are possible, right? We keep speaking the truth in the most loving way we can. Beg God for the results to do what only he can do. But these folks, their their prideful, self-centered, self-worshipping thoughts will be totally dismissed and ignored by the only one who counts on the final day. The coming of mighty God in the incarnation and all his kingly authority will scatter those who are banking on their own wisdom. It will dismiss them. Depart from me, I never knew you. Sheep on the right, goats on the left, depart. Never knew you. Cast into eternal destruction forever. It's a sad truth. The world is so full of people who are proud in their intellect, proud in their knowledge, proud in their scientific method, proud in their understanding, proud in their critical race theory, proud in their gender theory, proud in their intersectional ideology, etc., etc., ad infinitum. These are the ones who can give a rational explanation. They pit their minds against God and proudly shake their fist in his face. And what the beloved Mother Mary, Mother of Mighty God, sweet little Mary, tells us here is that the effect of the coming into the world of Jesus, mighty God in the flesh, scatters them, dismisses them, and ultimately makes them look silly. Mighty God always wins, ultimately. Mighty God is undefeated. Mighty God was crucified on the third day. He walked out of that tomb. And let's not misunderstand here, beloved. We are not denouncing intellect. Please, don't hear me saying that. Not at all. We are not denouncing wisdom. Wisdom, biblical wisdom, is a virtue. Proverbs tells us that over and over. What we are denouncing here is the pride of intellect. Jeremiah 9, 23, let not the wise man boast in his wisdom but let him who boasts boast in what that he understands and knows me that's why we're studying the names of Jesus so we can understand and know him and today we want to know him as mighty God we've covered or we may cover I can't remember exactly we'll cover the carrying the lambs around okay we'll cover that 
Shepherd, yeah, letter S. We'll get there. Yes, he's a loving shepherd. He carries us around, his lambs. But when he flexes his mighty arm, you better watch out. You better be on the right side. He is mighty God. We are denouncing the attitude of those who say, I am sufficient and complete. I don't need God. And if that's you, and your words may not say that, but your apathy does, if that's you, please understand, you will ultimately be scattered, dismissed, demolished. Everything this word means done away with, disintegrated, you will ultimately perish unless you repent. And I got good news for you. Today is the day of salvation. Today is the day the apathy can end. The nonchalance can end. The thinking you're okay in your own self can end. God can give you a new heart today. I pray that will happen. Again, let, let's, under, let's just wrap this point up. Let's all understand. One day, those who are wise and proud in their own hearts, the elite who think they are smarter and better than all of us old regular Joes and Baptist bumpkins, they will be the laughing stock of the universe. Have you ever thought about that? They will be the laughing stock of the universe. Psalm 2.4, he who sits in the heavens does what? He laughs at those who tried to do away with him, that those that tried to discard him or ignore him. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them, them being the ones who don't need God. He holds them in derision. The cosmic laughter of the King of Kings will reverberate throughout all eternity. Please, I'm begging you, don't be the focus of that laughter. Repent today, now. Trust Jesus alone for the forgiveness of your sins. True wisdom is right at your fingertips. It's closer to you than your breath. Don't be too wise and too proud and too self-sufficient for your own good. Please. I'm begging you. I'm begging you. Second, what else does mighty God's might do? What else does it demolish? One of those things that people trust in. Number two, his might demolishes the lost person's worldly power. It demolishes his worldly wisdom. Okay? Secondly, it demolishes his worldly power. Verse 52, he has brought down the mighty from their thrones. He's brought down the mighty from their thrones. Brought down means to cause to be brought down, to tear down, destroy, dismantle, demolish by overpowering and conquering, to do away with, to eliminate. Again, another very strong word. And think about it. 
I mean, you can just read the Bible and see that. God is always doing this. He's always doing this. It's one of the Bible's great themes. Pharaoh brought down. Goliath brought down. Nebuchadnezzar brought down. Belshazzar, you've been found in the scales. You've been put on the scales and found wanting. Brought down. Herod brought down. And the worms ate him. Remember that one? Acts 12 brought down. All these people. All these worldly rulers brought down. This is God's way of dealing with ungodly rulers. He ultimately, ultimately, key word. You might say, well, there's, there's some ungodly worldly that reigned for a long time. Well, and some that are reigning. Okay, ultimately. He ultimately brings them down. This is what he's always been doing. This is what he will continue to do. He will bring down the mighty, the worldly mighty from their thrones. Look at the, the pages of world history. Nero, Alexander, Caesar, Napoleon, Mussolini, Hitler, every dictator has gone down. They all eventually do. Finally, the devil and all who belong to him will go down to the lake of fire and will be destroyed forever. Jesus came into the world to do that. 1 John 3, 8. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. The head of the prince of darkness has been crushed, and he is going down. And all those who preach the doctrine of demons will go down with him. You can count on it. It's a safe bet. I don't know how you would express that in terms of over and under. I don't even know what those terms mean. I look on the th- bottom of the foot. I was trying to watch a football game. I'd see those over under thing. What in the heck is that? Okay, but anyway, this is a safe bet. This is a safe bet. Number three, finally, the might of mighty God demolishes the lost person's worldly riches. So, worldly wisdom, worldly power, worldly riches. Scattered, demolished, done away with. Verse 53, the rich he has sent away, empty, empty, empty. The word there, the Greek word means without anything, empty-handed. Even means foolish, stupid, moronic. So that points to our, our brain. Brains are empty. So I don't, I don't think this is primarily, because of the meaning of the word, I don't think this is primarily meant to be taken materially. In other words, the good news is you can be a Christian and be wealthy materially. You know, the issue is not having a lot of stuff and a lot of money. The issue is what do you do with your stuff and your money, okay? So a Christian can be wealthy materially. not talking about that. I believe it's, it needs to be taken morally, morally. Examples. Rich young ruler, remember that story? Came to Jesus, what do I need to do to inherit eternal life? You, well, keep the commandment. Oh, I've done that. I've done that. I've kept the rules. I've kept all the rules. He was rich in morality as well as money. But he went away sad. He went away empty. He came with a full bag of human moralism and human do-goodism. So he, so he professed. And went away completely devoid of anything, of any worth spiritually. He went away empty. The rich he has sent away empty. 
Mary, Mary said, he was, Mary, you're right on. And then your son gave us an example of it. In Matthew 19, I think, and Mark 10. What about the Pharisees? Man, these guys, were, they, they were so rich. They had the scriptures. They memorized them. They wore them on their sleeves, phylacteries. They, had, they knew the scriptures. But they were whitewashed tombs, empty on the inside except for dead men's bones. Jesus, mighty God, came into the world and sent them away empty with all their self-imposed righteousness completely blotted out. They thought they were rich in righteousness, but it was self-righteousness. And they were totally empty. Why did the Pharisees hate Jesus so much? Because they thought they were rich in religious knowledge, and he sent them away empty. The Son of God always sends those who are rich in self-righteousness away. He always sends those who are rich in moral do-goodism away empty. Good quote by D. Martin Lloyd-Jones, one of those great preachers. He says, a man says, I'm a good fellow. I'm better than this man. What's he thinking? I bet he's thinking about the Pharisee in Luke 18. Remember Luke, that's a great story. Looked over the tax, tax collector. I'm glad I'm not like that scum of the earth. I do this and I do that. I pay my tithes. I pray. I, 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 I. He went away empty. Again, Jesus gives us the flesh and blood example. He went away empty. The tax collector looked up to heaven or couldn't even look up to heaven, beat his chest and said, depart from me. I'm a sinner. Have mercy on me. I'm a sinner. He went away, what? Full. He went away full, justified. Back to the Lord Jones quote. A man says, I'm a good fellow. I'm better than this man, and I'm much better than that one. I do a lot of good. I'm wonderful, just as the Pharisee said in the temple in Luke 18. And then he finds that God's law says, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart and with all thy soul and with all thy strength and thy neighbor as thyself. And he knows he's undone. Because he doesn't do that. He's not even trying to do that. He's not striving to do that. None of us do that perfectly, right? But are, are we striving? Well, that's a cure for apathy and nonchalance. Love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, mind, soul, and strength. Or he listens to Christ saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit in Matthew 5. And he's so full of pride, he's damned already. And he goes away empty. Or he hears, blessed are the meek. In the same sermon, he knows that he's the opposite of meekness. Jesus' words, blessed are they which do hunger and thirst after righteousness, make him aware he is boasting in his righteousness. Again, he is sent away empty. The Son of God always sends the rich away empty. Those who are rich in their own Self-righteousness always go away empty. For every one of us, the best of us, the most moral of us, our self-righteousness is as filthy rags. This is the bad news of the gospel. But the good news is only as good as the bad news is bad, right? Thank God for the flip side of that coin. There's tremendously good news. 
We desperately need the righteousness of Jesus if we're going to be accepted by God. When God opened his eyes, Paul realized this. Listen to what he said in Philippians chapter 3, beginning at verse 4. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But <laughs> that was all self-righteousness. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. That's why we're studying his names. We want to know the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, our Lord. For his sake, I've suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own. Why, Paul? Because that leads to emptiness. That leads to being scattered. That leads to being sent away empty. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. Faith alone in Christ alone. The righteousness, righteousness from God, it's a gift that depends on faith. All of Paul's former riches were nothing. He was empty before the Lord. And only then could he be filled with all the fullness of Christ. And beloved, that's the way it works. That's the way it works for anyone who will be saved. Real quick, since we're at the letter N, and it's the only N word I got, I tack this on real quick. Jesus is the name above all names. The name above all names. Philippians chapter 2, beginning at verse 9. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Jesus is the name above all names. We all know that in our head. I pray it's in your heart. He's the name above all names. No other name is more wonderful. No other name is more beautiful. No other name is sweeter. No other name is more exalted. No other name deserves more praise and honor and glory. No other name has been given by which a person can be saved. This is why the human writers, especially in the Old Testament, and especially in Psalms, spoke of his name so often. Oh, magnify the Lord with me, and let us exalt his name together. And you will say on that day, give thanks to the Lord. Call upon his name. Make known his deeds among the people. Proclaim that his name is exalted. 
Let them praise the name of the Lord. For his name alone is exalted. His majesty is above earth and heaven. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Man, it's too much. It's too wonderful. As as David said, it's too wonderful. I can't, can't, can't comprehend it. I can't fathom it. Like I said, I loved being at Bellevue last week. It's a historic church with some historic pastors. I've already mentioned Adrian Rogers. R.G. Lee from 1927 to 1960. Outside the front entrance of the church as a monument. Not to R.G. Lee. But a monument to Jesus. With one of R.G. Lee's quotes on it. It's about, it's, it's a cube-like thing. About this high. Got like a little like a, a bronze open Bible on it. Or bronze can't remember if it was an open Bible or just a bronze piece on top of some marble. And engraved on that bronze piece at the top was this R.G. Lee quote. I'll give him the final word today. Very fitting uh, to wrap up this message and to wrap up my week. Jesus Christ, Son of Man without sin, Son of God with power, Literature's loftiest ideal, philosophy's highest personality, criticism's supremest problem. (laughs) I love that one. Theology's fundamental doctrine, Christianity's cardinal necessity. Is heaven's bread for earth's hunger, heaven's water for earth's thirst, heaven's glory for earth's shame, heaven's grace? For earth's guilt, heaven's hope for earth's despair, heaven's love for earth's hate, heaven's peace for earth's strife, heaven's forgiveness for earth's sins, heaven's life for earth's death. Hallelujah. What a Savior is Jesus our Lord. Let's pray together. Father, we praise the name of Jesus. Name above all names. No other name is more exalted. No other name can be linked to a man's or woman's salvation. No other name carries the majesty of the name of Jesus. Oh, magnify the Lord with me. And let us exalt his name together for all of our days. As long as you let us live, as long as you let us be a church, let us exalt his name together. Now, Father, we thank you for this time at the precious table of grace where we remember what mighty God has done for us in laying down his life for his bride. Thank you, Father. In that majestic name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.